This is Finding Normal, Life After Spiritual Trauma. Thank you for joining us as we focus on healing, finding God, and feeling a little less crazy in everyday life following a toxic faith experience. Welcome back to the podcast, and we'll be continuing our series on patriarchy today. One thing in reference to our last episode in uh, Patriarchy Part 1, when we were talking about possible explanations for why Paul brought up the order of creation when he was in in Timothy, he was talking about um, the culture in Ephesus and the cult of Artemis there. We've done a little bit more reading on what information we can find on ancient Ephesus, and it's not as clear whether the cult of Artemis was all that matriarchal. It's just unclear. It's it's impossible to know how female-dominated the city of Ephesus actually was. It could possibly have been, but it's not definitive. So it's you know it's not something we can really be certain about that that was what Paul was talking about. You know, it's a possibility, but it's kind of hard to nail down. So I just wanted to clarify that so, so we weren't misrepresenting it. It's still a possible explanation for the passage, but it's not certain that that is what the culture was like either right. way. So um, we, spent a, we spent a long time talking about the various scripture passages dealing with creation and the fall, and that's as far as we got last time. So let's pick up. We're going to talk about some of the other passages in the Old Testament dealing with women, and then we'll move on a little bit into the New Testament as well and hopefully uh, clarify some things and dig into what the Bible actually teaches. One thing to keep in mind when you're looking at the Old Testament, particularly Old Testament law, is that the law was given to Israel in the context of the time and culture they were in. So one one helpful way to look at that is when you're looking at the laws that God gave them, one thing you got to understand is the purpose for Israel, and Israel was going to bring the Messiah. But um, so, you know, God gave them laws that would protect that and keep them focused on that. But you also have to compare them to the other cultures around them. And without a little bit of research, you it's hard for us to just know offhand what Canaanite culture was like, or Assyrian culture was like, or Babylonian culture was like. It We don't necessarily have that information at our fingertips. Um, because one of the things you notice when you start to look at the law in its historical and cultural context is that while we might look at the laws in the Old Testament and think, some of these are I wouldn't be comfortable with some of these today. God was actually giving Israel a better path, something that gave more grace than the typical laws of the cultures around them. So when we look at these, I want to comp- bring up a few laws where when we compare them to the laws of the cultures in the ancient Near East, we see that God was actually protecting women and giving women more rights than the cultures around them, even though we look back at it and it seems 
very harsh and restricting still compared to the rights women have today. Um, so God was trying to move them in the right direction, and it's it's helpful to look at that in that in that way sometimes. So I'm going to run through a few examples. Um, one was in the laws about what happened in the spoils of war. It was very common in the ancient Near East to take women as spoils of war. Now, in the other ancient Near Eastern cultures, basically men could take women as spoils of war and do whatever they wanted. I'm not going to elaborate. But in the law, several places, in Numbers and Deuteronomy, and I, there's some passages in Judges as well, God places restrictions on how they had to treat their prisoners. That meant they, you know, they couldn't just do whatever they wanted with women they captured. Along those lines in Exodus as well, there are specific rights given to slaves and concubines that are not common to the law codes of the other, the other cultures around them. Slaves and concubines basically had no rights and men could do whatever they wanted. But in the law, God gave some rights and protections there. So he's trying to show Israel to show a little bit of respect for people, for women more so than the cultures around them. I think that's, those are important to point out. Um, there's also protections in the law saying what punishments wives can have, you know, husbands can punish their wives for certain things, which, you know, it's ancient Near Eastern law, but there is protection against excessive punishment. In some of the other cultures, you know, men could basically maim their wives for any reason, almost. It's appalling. But in the Old Testament law, there is a there are some rights re reserved for them and uh, a little bit of protection established there. There's the unusual case that you might have heard of um, in numbers where women are allowed to inherit property because their father had no sons as the daughters of Zalafahad, I'll guess at the pronunciation there at the moment, where they're given some inheritance rights. Even in Deuteronomy, of course, I'm not talking about the New Testament at this point, but even in Deuteronomy, women are given more rights in cases of divorce. Um, Jesus actually references it where they established there's that bill of divorce. They actually had to have a legal proceeding the man couldn't just launch off and divorce a wife for any reason, any time, just kick him out. And you know, there was some kind of legal proceeding. There were there were some situations in which men were not allowed to divorce and things like that in the law. So there's some protection against unfair divorce proceedings there. There's also um, laws protecting women in adultery and rape cases. There's there's some legal proceeding that they had to go through with the Old Testament law, which there's not really much of that at all in the other ancient Near Eastern cultures. There's just no protection whatsoever. And so there's, there's a little bit, and you see, see God giving them a little bit of protection there and pushing Israel in the right direction, if I can say it that way. And we're not saying that these Old Testament laws are supposed to be prescriptive for what how believers function today. Oh, right. They are, there are people who teach that. Um, True. But this is from the book we're using as a source for some of the information about the ancient Near Eastern cultures is by Webb and it's called Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals. And it's not a really interesting book to read. <laughs> 
I think it's, a, I think <laughs> it's it might academic. be his thesis. <laughs> yeah, it's very academic. It's very yeah. well-researched and informative, but it is very academic. Um, but he espouses what he refers to as the, a redemptive hermeneutic. Right. Where mm-hmm. the idea is that God is not, God is not changing, but God gave the Bible to people in their cultures with an understanding of the surrounding culture. Like, it would have been impossible for the people of that era to grasp the concept of, like, a woman can have equal, you know, the same rights as a man. Or It would have even been it, impossible for them to grasp what was what was taught in the New Testament. Right. Because the culture was so different. And so God gave things to them, understanding graciously where they were. And you can see as throughout the Bible that it's not that God is changing. It's not that what is right and wrong is changing. God is moving them in the right direction. Yes. And God continues to move them in the right direction. So by the time you get into the New Testament, hundreds of years later, Mm -hmm. that there is no male or female. You're all one in Christ. Mm -hmm. Um, He's moving them that direction. And even though that, you know, the Greco-Roman culture that the New Testament believers were living in was not equality, what God had given was always better than the surrounding culture. Than the surrounding culture, right. He's always moving them in the right direction. So you can learn from comparing it to the surrounding cultures. Um, One other thing, and obviously there's a counterpart to this in the New Testament, but there are family codes in Deuteronomy. And obviously there's what are referred to as the household household codes. I can (laughs) never say that. I can never say that phrase. Household (laughs) cold. Yes, if you have a if you are a family with small children, you are familiar with the household household colds. Anyway, <laughs> no, the household codes in Ephesians are kind of a counter a New Testament counterpart to this that build on it maybe, but the family codes in Deuteronomy give the wife more responsibility and prominence than anything in the ancient Near East either. But it's interesting these things that have a New Testament component there's kind of a new testament parallel that goes even farther and so you can see god kind of showing them this and if you think that this is crazy and far out and you guys are like heretics gather the sticks um we're ready to burn you at the stake (laughs) this you know whole redemptive hermeneutic thing um think of the ten commandments right so in exodus is the ten commandments and you know thou shalt do this 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 thou shalt not do this 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 and and then by the time you get into the New Testament era, the Pharisees have added on all their little bits and pieces of mm-hmm. specific things. And I mean, and throughout the whole law, there's a bunch more commandments, right. you know, that are given. And Jesus comes along and he's, you know, someone asks him, like, what's the greatest commandment? And thou shalt love the Lord thy God and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Like those those are the two commandments. Basically, like, there you go. You do those two things and you got it all covered. D- does that, maybe that makes a little bit more sense in that context then instead of yeah. trying to analyze cultural things, you know, to, to narrow it's like, like Jesus did that with a lot of things. Yeah. And like I said, it does he take got, a little bit of research to know the, know what all the cultural surrounding was. 
Right. You know, so but, you don't have to in all cases. But Jesus does that. I mean, in like in his teaching, you know, what he says, um, he'll he'll quote from the law mm-hmm. and then elaborate on it, basically pointing out this is the heart mm-hmm. of it. This is this is what it's not enough to just do this action or not do this action. It's about mm-hmm. your heart. It's about the motivation and behind he, it. He's pointing out what God was trying to the direction God was trying to show them. Right. Was not about do this thing, this thing, this thing. It was about thinking like this and and changing how you relate to other people. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's about where your heart is or mm-hmm. you know, your heart being devoted to God. Which is interesting if you look at it that way, this this hermeneutical approach is like Jesus demonstrates it with those those statements where he says the law says this, but I tell you this. And, and he broke the law. I mean, he he broke the laws about this, the you know these little and, specific and laws, mm-hmm. and because that wasn't the point, right? Of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so that's what this is. But yes, so it's it was better for the women in Israel than most of the nations surrounding them, at least yeah. from the evidence. And there's, there's a, number, the, a number of a laws. number of laws that are that way. One other thing to keep in mind is that you you de- there is definitely a progression in how God works as well. If you if you look at it, um, you know He chose Israel, but then Jesus came, and the church was open to Jews and Gentiles. So He expanded it and is establishing a broader people of God and Jesus. You know, the, so that. The teaching is moving. Who he in, can include in the people of God is is moving over time. He's going somewhere with it. He's trying to reach more people and teach them more and more over the course of history. And um, you know that's one way to look at it. It's kind of neat to see what God's doing, but it's not it's not far fetched. It may sound a little odd, but it's you know there's if, once you stop and th- stop and look at it, I think it's a very valid way to look at it. That's helpful. But it's not something we we think of firsthand when we just gloss over the passages. And just because the Bible was written in a culture of patriarchy, and there's obvious patriarchy in the Bible, doesn't mm-hmm. mean that God was okay with that and condoned that. Right. I, mean, you, I think of. I mean, I think slavery is a more straightforward example. I right. hope nobody thinks that that's still okay. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, it's obviously there, and there's even in the New Testament directives to slaves because they existed, Mm -hmm. slaves and masters. But I would hope that no one today is like, well, slavery is in the Bible, so we should still be doing it. Um, Yeah, Mm. there's rape in the Bible, too. There's murder. There's all sorts of wickedness because people are wicked, and, (laughs) you know, it's, it's written... About people. Like, there's a lot of people in the Bible. And God is always communicating truth to people in the culture they're in and in the context they're in. So, obviously, I mean, even in the New Testament, in the Roman Empire, like you said, there were slaves. So, God was communicating to them where they were and moving from there. I mean, to say that because there's patriarchy in the Bible, so we have to, we still have to do it because it's there. I mean, that's. Look at the original documents of the founding of the United States. 
there's really not a lot of rights for people who aren't free land-owning white men. Right. So we should have just kept it there, right? Yeah. Or should we build on the principle of freedom? Anyway. Right. (laughs) So, yeah. So that's, I mean, obviously those things are not inspired documents, um, but that's the absurdity of it, um, is if we were to, to do that. It's not just in the law. We, let's continue to look at the Old Testament. There's a couple of examples. Um, there's some New Testament examples, but in the Old Testament, there's a couple of really good examples of prominent women yeah. so that are very interesting. Let's talk about Deborah and Huldah. And Deborah you've probably heard of, and Huldah you might not have heard of. Um, Deborah, I don't know, there's still people named Deborah today. Huldah, not so much. Um, <laughs> a friend of mine, um, who's a pastor, actually, we were talking on the phone and we were talking about, you know, I was reading some of these books and I was like, this is really interesting. Uh, this was months and months ago. And he said, do you remember Huldah? I'm like, who? He's like, Huldah in the Old Testament. It's like, I don't remember reading about Huldah. Of course it's there, but no, I didn't remember it. <laughs> Somebody had to remind me to go look it up. So Deborah, of course, is in the book of Judges, um, chapters four and five. And um, you can go look up the account if you don't remember but um basically deborah was a judge um (laughs) there's all these things that come into my mind we could take so many rabbit trails um so like the book of judges was it were they consecutive judges or did they all like were they different (laughs) parts of israel that they were judging some of them at the same time and overlapped i mean so anyway she was a judge in israel so we're just gonna leave it there Um, and people came to her um, for Mm -hmm. things and, um, she would have been applying the law, the Mosaic law that had been given. That's, you know, she's making her judgments, not just Mm -hmm. like, she's not just some old woman with charms and things you think of, like from, um, um, I think of the, the princess and the frog. You know, they go to her to get how do we become human again after being turned into frog? You know, it's like it's not that like she's she's applying the the law. She holds a spiritual position in Israel. And so she tells uh, Barak that he needs to go out and do battle and he's going to have this victory or whatever. And and then Barak's like, yeah, but I want you to come with me. So because Barak wouldn't just, like, trust God and just take God's word that Deborah was giving him, mm-hmm. he wanted her to hold his hand, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so she's like, so God's like, okay, well, but then a woman is actually going to have the ultimate victory in this. It's not going to be, you know, Barak, you're going to win the battle, but a woman is going to defeat the leader of the enemy army. And I feel like that is sometimes mistaken mistaken as like Barak should have been the real leader but he let he was like no I want Deborah to be the leader and like people look at that like well she's a woman and Barak shouldn't have been deferring to her and so that's why God like punished him by letting a woman yeah people explain it like the problem is that Barak didn't step up and lead yeah and that's not there's nothing in the passage that implies that I mean there's obviously patriarchy there um, because it talks about 
well, now, Barak, you're not, you know, the, the victory will basically be won by a woman. But it was, it's not because he was deferring to Deborah. It was because he wasn't taking God at his word. I mean, that, right. that very likely could have mm-hmm. happened if it had been a male prophet speaking to Barak as well. Because right. um, it's not that in, Deborah took, it's not that Deborah took his honor in Salt Lake. Or he gave it up. Or he gave to, it up. To or, a woman. You know, Deborah was undermining his honor. It's, it was another woman. It was Jael who ended up, it wasn't that Deborah got the victory instead of Barak because Barak didn't take the lead. It's that Barak didn't believe what God said first right. time. And and he lost face. I mean, that was a, that's a big thing in the Eastern mm-hmm. culture, which we don't understand as much. The whole honor and losing mm-hmm. face and being dishonored because, you know, Barak lost face by a woman being the one to defeat the enemy. Sisera. Yeah. So that shows like, yes, it's a patriarchal culture because that's considered, you know, a woman mm-hmm. had, you know, did this. But we we get it. What I've always heard is like, well, Deborah had to step up because Barak wouldn't do it. And it's like, that's right. not really what it says. No. It's, I don't know. I don't think we'd think that way if it had been a male prophet talking to mm-hmm. Barak. We would have just said, well, Barak didn't, I guess, ha- like trust God enough to and do it. And there's examples of that in the Old Testament where a prophet comes to a king or somebody else and they don't believe what God mm-hmm. said. And so then there's some consequence. Um, but we never say, well, the prophet had to step in and do it because the king or right, whoever. It's right. like, it's, I'm thinking of that you know. king. I don't remember which king it was, but there's a king where a prophet came to him. The king's on his deathbed and says he wants God to heal him and he wants to, you know, defeat this, defeat the whatever the enemy army that was plaguing them at the time. And so the prophet tells him to take his bow and shoot it into the ground. And he shoots three times and stops and looks at the prophet like, okay. And the prophet says, well, because you stopped it three times, you'll defeat them three times, but they won't be com- utterly defeated. If you'd kept shooting, then you would have utterly, def- God would have let you utterly defeat them. So it's like, there is a consequence for his lack of faith, mm-hmm. his lack of confidence in what the, God was telling him through the prophet. But we don't look at that. It, we don't read anything else into that. It's just, yeah. he didn't trust God. So he didn't get the ultimate. We're just not glory from comfortable him. with a woman having that type <laughs> of leadership. Um, yeah. So mm-hmm. they're mentioned, Deborah and Barak are mentioned as equals. But it's not implied that, you know, Barak is the real leader or was supposed to be the real leader. Nothing in the account says that. If anyone mm-hmm. makes that application, they're they're making I mean they're stretching it. <laughs> that's their take. That's not what it says. Mm-hmm. Um Jail is praised. She's the one who killed Sisera. Mm-hmm. Um and it's not like how dare she usurp a man's glory, how dare she take this victory from a man or it's like oh yeah well a woman had to do it because a man you just like go jail like she yeah. was awesome and she did this thing um so yeah so that's deborah and i always like to i always like to think of jail when people when people condescendingly bring up like how a godly woman should be or a biblical woman meaning that they should be quiet and submissive and stay out of 
stay out of everybody's way and just like do the chores. Bring out the and tent it's spikes. Like, it's like get, let's get out the tent spikes and <laughs> kill some tyrants. Like that's not the type of biblical woman you're thinking of, is it? But she's there and she's praised in the Bible. So, you know, making your selective application to mean what you want it to mean does not count as biblical. <laughs> And then there's Hulda, who we really don't think of that much. And I didn't remember what passage she was in, but I looked it up and I was really surprised. Um, because, so I think we overlook her because, especially because it was, um, it's she's just in a couple verses. Um, she's in... Kings and Chronicles, right? Yeah, 2 Kings 22, 14 to 20, and 2 Chronicles 34, 22 to 28. So just like six verses in these um, parallel passages. And it's the time when Josiah becomes king, and then he, um, a few years into his reign, the, the law is discovered in the temple. It had been neglected, Um and the people have not been worshiping God like they were supposed to. And so they found the law and they took it to the king. And the king said, well, take it to someone in the temple. Like, take take it to, you know, someone find out what we're supposed to do, basically. And the people, the men that, that went to Hulda, it says they went to talk to Hulda, who's a prophetess. Like, they weren't just like, oh, I don't know, let's go find someone. Oh, look, there's, oh, maybe we could talk to her. Maybe she knows something because, like, the high, you know, the high priest isn't in. Um, it actually was the high priest who went to her. Mm-hmm. It was the high priest, the court secretary, and the king's personal advisor. They went looking for Hulda to ask her about this. Like Because she was the recognized prophet. Yeah. I mean, the high priest, not Mm -hmm. just like some priest intern. Right. You know, who's like, oh, I don't know. She looks like she might know something I don't. Um, So, yeah. So she was, I think, kind of a big deal. (laughs) They went Um, looking. I mean, they were looking for direction from the Lord, and that's who they went to. Yeah. They went Mm -hmm. to hold Um, So. Yeah. And, uh. Oh my goodness, God chose to speak through a woman. What? I mean, both of those examples show that even in the Old Testament, as much as much as we can talk about, you know, you can see movement away, you know, perhaps movement in what what God reveals through that throughout the Bible away from a strict patriarchal structure. Even in the Old Testament, God is very comfortable working through women and working through them in prominent ways. Now, they hold spiritual positions. Now, I will say it's not unheard of in the secular culture of the time either. You think of Greek culture, hmm. the oracles. Like, I just think of, like, the hmm, oracle yeah. of Delphi. Like, I believe a lot of times these were women mm-hmm. as well. That's true. So it's not, you know, unheard of in other religions and in the secular world mm-hmm. for these to, for there to be women in these positions. But there were probably other prophetesses in Judaism, mm-hmm. like just because they're not mentioned, but it's like, it doesn't make a big deal about it. It's not like, Whoa, it's a woman, you know, right. it's, it's just like, okay, Deborah was a, Deborah was a judge and she just, and Holly was a prophetess and they went to her mm-hmm. and it's, I don't know. I mean, maybe there weren't any other women, but 
there were schools of prophets and we don't hear about all the prophets right. that existed in the old Testament era. And there were probably other women as well. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, so that's just interesting. We don't ever really talk about Hulda and no one really preaches about that. Um, <laughs> really want to hear a, a mother's day sermon about Deborah and JL because yeah. Yeah. But what do we hear on mother's day? We're going to transition to, Proverbs 31. And if you just were overwhelmed by a feeling of complete dread, just hold on. It'll get better, we promise. <laughs> it's not as bad as you think. So I discovered that I am not alone in my... Hatred is a strong word, but that's kind of what I feel. Um, my animosity, my resentment of the Proverbs 31 woman... I mean, there are ministries focused on the virtuous woman, Proverbs 31 ministries, stuff like that. You know, their women's ministry, like, is almost equivalent to Proverbs 31, right? If it's not Titus 2. Um, So, some things to think about with Proverbs 31. (laughs) Proverbs is still in the context of the Mosaic Law. Just because you got to wisdom literature in your section of the Bible doesn't mean that everything else is now obsolete. It's not like going from the Old Testament to after the death of Jesus when he has, you know, rent the veil Mm -hmm. in the temple and that. You don't get to do that with other sections of the Bible. Yeah, this (laughs) is still in law. In the era of the law, the law applied to, you know, everybody there, just like it applied, you know, it applied to David and Mm -hmm. his rule and he broke it sometimes and didn't, anyway, we'll get off on that. Um, But it applied to to Solomon and whoever else wrote Proverbs. Um, I don't know. There's some Egyptian Proverbs in there too. So that's kind of whatever. Um, Okay. So, some ideas about Proverbs 31 is that some people say maybe it's not actually talking about a literal woman. Maybe it's the personification of wisdom because there's this whole big thing earlier in the book about, like, Proverbs 7 could be, like, personifying, like, folly. And then, so this is wisdom. There's a lot of poetic poetic personification going on earlier. I mean... It personifies wisdom. There's a, there is a personification of wisdom earlier in the book, and yet then there's yet there's almost personifications of character traits going on. It's possible. It's not explicitly stated. Yeah, but there is so much of these just like little proverbs, um, you know, witticisms. Like going I don't think on, you can tie proverbs just, into a unif like some grand unified overall structure. It's like a collection. Of, it is collection. Of, you know things people said um Mm -hmm. because it's not all solomon i mean there's there's egyptian proverbs in there too like i mentioned you know it's like if you collected you know sayings by confucius and you know all these well-known people you know Mm -hmm. stuff like that so that's kind of like what proverbs some of the proverbs say they're written by other people so it's not all solomon somebody edited it so um it is in the context of wisdom literature now a huge rabbit hole that i don't want to go i mean i want to go down i will not go down (laughs) but i discovered when i was like researching this is like 
should wisdom literature even be considered a genre in the Bible? Like, should it, shouldn't these books be lumped in? Like, should they be categorized a different way, not as wisdom literature? But anyway, we won't talk about that tonight because that's a whole different topic, but it's really interesting. Um, so, so Proverbs 31, um, it also, you can look at it. I mean, it's narrative. It says basically, you know, this is something like a proverb of King Lemuel who and his mother told him this. And, you know, it's just like repeating Mm -hmm. their conversation kind of or like what she said to him. Um, Some people think that the king mentioned Lemuel is Solomon, but that's kind of used to with the idea that we want all of Proverbs to be written by Solomon. So it's a bit of a stretch. So, yeah. And it's like <laughs> Solomon's mother is Bathsheba. If she's saying that this is what a woman should be like, well, she doesn't really fit that description because we know mm-hmm. a little bit about her life. So the thing that makes the most sense to me is if you're looking at it as it's addressed to a king from his mother Whatever king that might be, Solomon, mm-hmm. who had 300 queens, basically, I mean, 300 wives and 700 concubines. So I don't know how many of them fit this description, but whatever. So I don't know. It just doesn't really seem to make sense that it's Solomon. But um, Lemuel could be a king of a different nearby country or someone we don't even know. Like, who knows who this guy was? Mm-hmm. But it seems like he's probably a king and of somewhere. <laughs> And a king would need a queen with specific characteristics. So think of, like, one of the more recent royal weddings would be Prince William. Mm -hmm. And he married Kate Middleton, who, whenever you see her, she always looks so well put together. And she looks like such a great mom. And obviously, she probably has, like, you know, someone to watch her kids so she could work out or someone to plan their meals so they can eat a well-balanced diet and all this stuff. Royalty has staff. (laughs) That's the way it works. And she's just, I mean, she went to the same college that Prince William did. Like, I think Mm -hmm. that's how they met. They met in college, I believe. And Yeah, that's pretty exclusive. Yeah. Yeah, and like, so she's obviously very well-suited to all these roles and, and duties she has to perform as a member of the royal family, like a royal, a working member of the royal family. Mm-hmm. Um, he can just go pick anybody off the street. So if you think of it like this, like if you think of Proverbs 31, like, okay, mm-hmm. so you're the king. So let's like, this is kind of what you need to be looking for in a consort. Yeah. You know, but however you want to view it, any of those ways, is it a personification of wisdom or is it, a queen mother talking to her son about the consort sure. he needs to marry, or mm-hmm. is it, you know, whatever, um, that there's no justification for using it how it's used, which is to guilt women. It just, that's how it's used. Oh, yeah. Women use it to guilt women. Pastors use it to guilt women. Mother's Day is like prime time for guilting women with Proverbs 31. Like, look at this impossible ideal that you're supposed to live up to. And look at all how you're failing and you just suck. Like, you're never going to meet it. I mean, you can go read it for yourself, all the things that it says that she does and stuff like that. And yeah, that's not happening for most people. (laughs) And some people try to soften it a little bit and say like, well, maybe this is this. These are things women are supposed to aspire to at different, you know, seasons, different seasons of their life and this kind of thing. And it's like. 
there's nothing in this passage indicating that all women need to aspire to any of this. And obviously it's just this is, there. I mean, even of that time, like, so some of the things are cultural. So you're like, well, change the cultural things. Like, sure, we're not going to go out and like make our own bedspreads, but, you know, or maybe even our own clothes, but we should be thrifty when we shop and make good decisions. Like, yeah, but that's not what it says. And also looking at it, even in its cultural setting, this wasn't every woman because what it's no. describing is someone who obviously has a high status right. that she can go and buy a field that she can make, you know, expensive clothing, mm-hmm. purple and fine linen. And Which her that, husband would that be that goes right along with that. The fact that this is somebody, this is somebody that would draw the attention of royalty. Right. And her, yeah. that her husband would sit in the gates mm-hmm. as like an elder. This is not, and not just everybody. No, yeah. like the shepherd's wife can't do these mm-hmm. things. So does that mean, like, obviously it's not universally applicable, even right. in the time period that it was written. Right. Um, the thing that is applicable, it talks about the end, in the end of it, about a woman that fears the Lord. But the rest of it, um, that's, yeah, people don't really focus on the fearing the Lord part. It's kind of like, you got to live up to all these things. And oh yeah, make sure you're fearing God too. Because like, duh. <laughs> so why do we use this one passage of a few verses? I mean, it's not even the whole chapter because people totally ignore what comes right before that. I actually forgot what it said and I opened the Bible to look again at what it said. And I'm just going to read from the NLT. Proverbs 31, people. Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9, after a reminder to not get drunk. It says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. I haven't heard any sermons on that, but I definitely heard about verse 10 to the end of the chapter. Same chapter. And that's actually written as an imperative. And the rest of it's just a description of this random person. Right. So anyway, so that's my soapbox, part of my soapbox. (laughs) Um, I'm not getting down from it yet. Um, So why, why aren't these Old Testament examples of like the men of God, why aren't they being used to beat men over the head from the pulpits? Why aren't you as strong as Samson? Don't you have enough faith? Why aren't you going out there and... And performing miracles like Elijah. Or why aren't you, why don't you have the wisdom of Solomon? Come on, guys. No one's doing that to them. But they take Proverbs 31, one passage, and hold women to that standard. It's ridiculous. It's just inherent patriarchy and misogyny in how they're applying the Old Testament. And so much of the focus of it is... I mean, I would say how we apply the Old Testament, how Christianity applies the Old Testament. There's just an inherent misogyny in it unfortunately and a lot of the focus of that passage too is about making your husband look good Hmm. because oh look at her husband gets praised because he has such a great wife it's not even about her it's like make sure you do all these things so that your husband looks good yeah so the word virtuous which i believe i've heard this before chris did a little bit of a word study on this because mm-hmm. he had Hebrew. Yeah, so the word virtuous, um, virtuous woman, the um, the Hebrew word for virtuous 
is the word for valor. Um, it comes from the root, the root strength. The Hebrew root is means strength. So the other related words, it and the other related words, tran- are translated to do with strength and valor and mighty. And most of the time it has to do with like military contexts and this kind of thing. So you're thinking in that context, this being translated virtuous is a complete anomaly and a little bit odd. And basically it's just a bad translation because the translators came to this and could not fathom the idea of translating this a woman of valor or a mighty woman. But that's what makes the most sense if you're just looking at the at the word. Like, what does this word mean based on how it's used and how its roots are used in other parts of the Old Testament? So this is not even, like, this isn't just like, these are the virtues that every woman should have. This is, this is a mighty woman. And not every man in the Old Testament was a mighty man, even the ones who were righteous. The mighty men are like, you know, that was like David's elite group of guys who did, like, killed hundreds of Philistines in a pea patch and all, I mean, all this kind of stuff, like amazing stuff. So like this woman is a mighty woman. This is a, a standout woman. There's no reason for it to be applied to everybody. But how dare you assign power to a woman? And because that's what it seems only, like the translators are downplaying it. Her big only time. power is found in her purity, <laughs> aka Ooh. virtue. Yeah. The translators are just like totally ignoring the, what should be the normal translation. Um, really as far curious, as I'm like, concerned. How that came about and who started that? Like, is that in the Geneva Bible? And like, where, what English hmm. translation started? that did because they get, did they get it from the Vulgate? I mean because even in the NLT <laughs> it says virtuous it says right. like virtuous and capable or something like that hmm. but it's like because it's familiar you know you right. don't want to take these right. super familiar passages and translate them too differently because people will be like what and then they're not gonna want to <laughs> buy it so you know it's like I don't yeah. know I just I'm just curious where that started. It's just but really that's if you go with the root meanings of that word, yeah, virtuous is not a great translation of that. So yeah. that's that's not that's not the idea that's supposed to come across there. So, so that's interesting. I just have such a problem with this even being like, well, we need to aspire to this, or even if you want to take it and be like, well, let's see how it would translate into our culture today, how we could live up to this. Because it's great to have ideals, because if you don't have ideals, you just kind of day-to-day whatever happens, and you have no hope for anything being better or Hmm. to aspire to anything. Like, ideals like beauty and, and goodness and truth and, you know while being tempered with reality that, you know, nothing will ever be perfect. But this is just, from what I have experienced and seen and heard from other people, this isn't really a list that people use for ideals. It's more like, oh man, I'm not living up to that. Oh, I need to be a virtuous woman. I'm not doing, I'm failing. And it's so shame inducing and that's not of God. So if you want a list of ideals, don't look in Proverbs 31 
in the context of the Mosaic Law and whoever these people were, King Lemuel and his mother, whoever they were, you know, who knows? <laughs> um, you know, because most of us aren't queens um, or going to be queen consorts anytime soon. So we're not going to, I mean, the person that comes to mind when I read that passage, thinking of it now, thinking in the terms of queen consort besides Kate Middleton, it's like Eleanor of Aquitaine. I mean, that's kind of her. Right. I don't know about the whole fearing the Lord part necessarily. Right. Um, I think she was kind of pious, perhaps, towards the end of her life. I don't remember exactly. But the rest of it, I'm like, I mean, yeah, like she was she was a mighty woman, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, that's not going to be most of us, if any of us. We can go look in uh, Galatians 5. That's our list. The fruit of the Spirit the fruit of the spirit and it's not anything that we have to check off or be like oh i don't know i'm not being like that i've got to work so hard because it's just walking in the spirit we don't have to try so hard and be frustrated and and when we fail we just have to step back into walking in the spirit get back in step so yeah that's my about Proverbs 31. <laughs> and that, I think, wraps up uh, some of the passages we wanted to highlight in the Old Testament. Yeah, I don't, I mean, there's passages that, like, talk about women, but it's yeah. just in the narrative context. And there are obviously passages that are severely patriarchal because of the cultural context they were in. But what, what we wanted to highlight is indications that patriarchal, patriarchal hierarchy was not the ideal that, you know, handed down by God from the beginning. I mean, we talked about that with the fall and stuff. That was introduced with the fall. And then throughout the Old Testament, you see God is breaking that mold in different ways. So the Bible is not just universally patriarchal, which is the idea you get from some people. Like, this is the biblical view. It's like, not exactly. No. And stop dragging Proverbs 31 into the New Testament era and right. using it to beat people over the head as a patriarchal weapon. Yeah. I mean... It's like unless you're an ancient Israelite wo- an upper-class ancient Israelite woman. Maybe not even Israelite. Right. That's true. Unless, unless you're an upper-class woman, woman in the ancient Near East who owns some property and stuff, like, it doesn't apply. It doesn't apply to all the people in the New Testament era. And like, if you, you just are can't. one of those women, let us know your time-traveling secrets. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why did I say it that way? It doesn't make any sense, does it? It makes total sense. I believe in time travel. Sure. Yeah. Okay, so that wrap, that about wraps up the Old Testament. So we wanted to do something a little bit different here before we jump into the New Testament and talk about, since we are talking so much about the surrounding culture of the time periods, at least for me growing up in church, I would often, it's so easy to separate like the biblical events and have that in your head as one thing. And like, Mm -hmm. then learn your stuff for history class as like a separate thing and not think about what's happening at the same time. Right. So, so for example, um, depends on which date of the Exodus you 
hold to, which is a whole other thing. There's another um, rabbit trail we're not going down <laughs> right now. <laughs> so around the time of the Exodus is when the Trojan War possibly occurred. The, yeah. the dates on that are not certain. But right, within a couple hundred years or so of the Exodus, I mean, that's, that's what was happening then. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about as accurate as we can get because I think both those events have a lot of archaeological debate around them. So So they're approximate. (laughs) In 776 BC, the first Olympic Games were held. And in 753 BC was the traditional founding of Rome. In 722 BC, so like just a couple decades later, that's when the northern kingdom of Israel was taken captive by Assyria. And then 586, the southern kingdom of Judah was taken into captivity by Babylon 509, so within the same century, is the founding of the Roman Republic. Then 499 to 449 BC, the Greco-Persian Wars, which, you know, there's some famous battles, famous, you know, things from that. Um, And then there were, in 483, so like during the time of the Greco-Persian Wars, were the events of Esther occurred. The Book of Esther. Right, because that's in Persia. And they're off fighting the Greeks during part of this time. Right. You know, so. And guess who was a contemporary of Esther? Socrates. Socrates lived at the same time as Esther. Over in Greece on that that side of things, Um, yeah. Then, during the lifetime of Socrates was when Ezra led the second group of Jews back to Jerusalem from Babylon. So Ezra and Ezra as well. The rise of the Greek city-states and Greek philosophy and thought is when the Jews are returning. Yes, so about not quite two decades after Ezra led that group back, then you have the Peloponnesian War, which is Athens versus Sparta. Mm -hmm. Within that time, Plato was born. Um, He died in 347 BC. Within Plato's lifetime is when the Gauls sacked Rome. 384 to 322 is Aristotle. 356 to 323, so around the same time as Aristotle's Alexander the Great, Aristotle was his tutor. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that, really important to remember. Yeah. Alexander the Great. So you know Alexander the Great, right? Like He, he went, went and like, conquered, conquered the world for Greece, everybody. basically. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where basically like all this Hellenization, the, the Greekifying of right. the known world of Alexander's the, the one who sat down and cried because there were no more worlds to conquer. Right? <laughs> See, no more lands to conquer after he conquered um, everything. So that's, you know, that's Greek culture is spreading. Um, But you see that the Rome is on, Rome is on the rise at this point. But, but Alexander the Great is from um, Macedon, his father's Philip of Macedon. And so that he conquered, you know, Greece and then everything. Um, And then you've got the Punic Wars, you've got, you know, Rome versus Carthage. um, And then 168, so like 150 so years after Alexander the Great. Rome defeats Macedon. So they... So now it's the Roman Empire. Yeah, so Rome is kind of taking over what the Greeks had. Then 167 to 141 is the Maccabean Revolt. So now you're in the um, intertestamental period, the 400 years of silence The Maccabees were revolting against the Greek rule. Rome hadn't conquered the Middle East yet, I believe. They're getting there. But I think they were revolting. And I mean, it's kind of the last stand of some of the remnants of Alexander's empire, if I remember. But I think the Maccabees were revolting against one of the 
one of the generals that inherited part of Alexander's territory. Yeah. And then um, Julius Caesar's life was 100 to 44 BC. And Julius Caesar conquers Gaul. He ventures into Britain. Mm -hmm. um, And then 31 BC, so shortly after Julius Caesar, Greece is absorbed into the Roman Empire. So that's all wrong. The Greeks, Mm -hmm. the Greek Empire there. So that's why the common language of Jesus' time and, you know, the New Testament is Greek. Right. Um, Then you've got Jesus' life and then Paul's missionary journeys. And I was so excited because... Do you know who is a contemporary of Paul? I mean, obviously they never met. I don't think Paul went to Britain. But Boudicca. Boudicca, the warrior queen, chieftainess yes. <laughs> of the Britons, one of the tribes, the Iceni. I think so. Um, yes. Yes. You know, she rebelled against the Romans mm-hmm. and her family suffered for that, but she stood up to them. Anyway. She was. She lived at the same time as Paul. AD 60 was mm-hmm. when her revolt was. And Paul's missionary journeys were 42 to 62. So it's like they were alive at the same time. Isn't that, I don't know, that just blew my mind. And that was really, <laughs> anyway. That is fun. Yeah. We, um, we have talked, we feel like maybe we should have gone with the name Boudicca for our daughter, but we didn't, so. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Warrior queen tendencies at times, for sure. <laughs> Um, All right. And then you got 66 is the first Jewish Roman war begins. And then 70 is when the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. Right. Which most people are probably familiar with that date. So anyway, I know that was like a lot of dates and history stuff, but I'm just trying to line it up for you so you can kind of understand how. The influence of Greek philosophy was so pervasive in the New Testament era because it was comparatively from when Greece was conquering everything. Comparatively, Rome, not that Roman, see, Rome didn't develop philosophy like Greece did. Mm -hmm. They developed structure, like cultural structure and... Military... You know, uh, military... Strategies. Military for sure. Kind of infrastructure. They built roads and water systems and government. But the philosophy really was the realm of the Greeks for a while. And And Rome didn't even conquer Israel from Greece that long before Jesus was born. So the Greek culture, philosophy, thought, that was the common thought of the ancient Near East. Roman families hired Greek tutors for their sons. Yeah, that was the thing to do. So Mm -hmm. they were trained, Romans, the Greek philosophy was their mindset Mm -hmm. as well. Greek, the Greek domain was like philosophy and education and thought. And the Roman domain was more, you know, infrastructure and government and organization and military. It's yeah. just kind of the way they, the way it all fell out. And we'll definitely see in our next episode how much Greek philosophy influenced um, the people that mm-hmm. Paul was writing to. Obviously, he was very familiar with it because he was well-educated. Right. Um and when you see, like, when you hear about, you know, the the Hellenization of the mm-hmm. Jews and um, most people that have done any Bible study have, like, seen, have read, like, there's passages, like, where the Jews are resisting the Hellenization and stuff mm-hmm. like that, or, like, they're reacting against that. Like, that's that Greek culture. You know, some Jews mm-hmm. chose to embrace that, and then others were like, 
no, we don't want that. Well, that's that. the classic debate that people bring up between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees yeah. were very conservative. They wanted to resist the Hellenization and mm-hmm. stick with strict Jewish codes and traditions. And the Sadducees were open to like, well, you know, some of this cultural stuff, it's fine, you know. So, I mean, there was that age-old debate within the Sanhedrin, yeah. within within the Jewish religious circles over that. Yeah. That was a lot of it. Um, but we want to just end this episode talking about Jesus and women. Mm-hmm. So I thought we could start with uh, Jesus's ancestry and the part that women played in that. Um, the women that we hear about from Jesus's genealogies and it's a remarkable thing for women to be mentioned in the genealogies because everything was, you know, the typical way to trace a genealogy was through the men. And, I mean, you see that in Genesis even, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so. You know, it's like father-son, 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 father-son. Mm-hmm. But there are women mentioned specifically in Jesus' genealogy. And these women are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. I don't. Are they all mentioned in the genealogy? We know Bathsheba is in there. I don't know that she is mentioned. Right, but we know at least Tamar and Rahab are for sure. Um, so these women, Tamar, was a Canaanite. She was married to Judah. Um, you know the original Judah, the son of. Israel, mm-hmm. and he, she was married to his oldest son, and oldest son died, so then they married her to the second son, and like, so there's this whole thing, and I'm not going to get into the details, because you probably know where you can look it up, but I skipped that chapter when I was reading it to my kids, because they're not ready to hear this stuff yet. Um, so anyway, that's just, just saying, um, yeah. there's, the Bible's good and all, but it's not all meant for small children, um, so, um, so she Basically because Judah wouldn't follow the law like that he right. was supposed to, she decided to just make it happen and she acted as a prostitute. Um, and so that's why she's in the genealogy. Mm-hmm. And then Rahab, uh, in the children's Bible stories, everybody's like, oh, she's an innkeeper. Um, yeah, she was a prostitute. Um, she was also a Canaanite. Mm-hmm. And inhabitant of Jericho. <laughs> then Ruth was um, a Moabite. That was like a really, really wicked culture. Mm-hmm. Um, their system of worship and stuff. Obviously, she rejected that to go. Right. She left all that. She chose, you know, actively and vocally chose Jehovah over mm-hmm. her ancestry. And I, I love Rahab's. Um, we just focus so much on the, the narrative, like just the story about Rahab and the spies. Mm-hmm. But what she says to the spies is pretty amazing. Like we've been hearing about you people and your God. And like, you know, she had a reason for, mm-hmm. <laughs> for siding with them. She knew how, how great God was. Um, so and then um, Bathsheba, maybe she was. A Hebrew, she was possibly Canaanite, like a Hittite. Um, we don't really know. There, There's someone mentioned that, like, could be her grandfather. Um, mm-hmm. It's unclear. Um, we know that she was married to a Hittite. Uriah the Hittite. Um, Uriah. Mm-hmm. 
I'm assuming he was a Hittite. The Hittites would capture people and take them back as slaves. So, like, was he an actual Hittite or was he, like, from the land of the Hittites and escaped slave from somewhere? Like, who knows? Anyway, I just listened to a BBC history or a BBC podcast about the Hittites. So I got all that in my head. Anyway, (laughs) um, so I'm like, I don't know. That'd be really interesting to know more about Uriah and where he came from. But, you know, Bathsheba, like, she could have been a Hittite. I, I don't know. Um, yeah, we she could have been here. Maybe she was. Maybe she was Jewish. I don't know. But she was a rape victim, mm-hmm. which I know some people argue that. But uh, he was the king. There was an obvious power imbalance there. Yeah. Do you think she really had any choice? Um, no. And where else was she supposed to take a bath? It was her house. Right. It's not her fault that he looked at her. We could so, <laughs> we could just we saying. could take that passage apart in detail some other time if we really wanted anyway, to. But so that's you. Uh, mm-hmm. Bathsheba yeah. uh, was, you know, a victim of sexual assault. And there is an amazing painting by, oh, I don't remember her name, uh, Trisha Robinson. Yes. Mm-hmm. And she does really fun, colorful, whimsical paintings. But she has this painting that she did called The Four of these mm-hmm. four women and how you know, we think, we look at them and their circumstances and like, wow, that they were broken, they were unusable, unwanted, you know, worthless in even today's standards of what they went through, what they did. It's like, and look, they, they're Jesus' ancestors. Yeah. Um, And I'm, I'm thinking through the, I'm thinking through the um, genealogy passages. All four are mentioned in the genealogy. (laughs) Bathsheba, not by name, but she is mentioned. So, yeah. So that's, that's the ancestry of, of Jesus. And then obviously... Um, you have Mary mentioned in there as well, who was, you know, to look at her, um, I mean, she wasn't, she wasn't married at first. Mm -hmm. Um, so that would have looked really bad. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. Um, what people, probably people thought she was like a prostitute, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, um, so yeah, so there's, so there's that. So let's then let's look at how Jesus actually interacted with women. Yeah. So in the in the gospel narratives and the, in the words of Jesus, he never, never puts any restriction on the ministry of women as opposed to men. He makes clear statements, but he never differentiates between how men should minister over women versus versus women. Like there's no difference there. He doesn't limit how women can be his disciples he doesn't limit how women should act versus men it's it's there's no restriction there um and beginning of luke chapter 8 makes it clear that women accepted women were accepted as disciples by jesus which jewish rabbis did not accept women as disciples like there were men who were disciples of rabbis And that's just not something women did. They didn't want women being disciples of rabbis. Jesus accepted women as disciples, which was unusual and 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 would have drawn attention. Place in like the public worship, like they Mm -hmm. couldn't be right with the men. And it's interesting around the time of Jesus' death, it's the women who stuck by what Jesus said. The men all ran off, they denied Jesus, or they ran and they hid and they were, oh no, it's all coming to an end. The women's faith was stronger. It's the women who went to the tomb. And all this is recorded, even though it's 
embarrassing to the men, but they were they were some of the disciples too. I mean, the women were equal disciples. Um, they were honestly the more faithful around the time of his death and resurrection. Um, it's interesting that God chose women as the first witnesses of the resurrection. They're the first ones to go to the tomb. The stones rolled away. The angel tells them, and they run back and tell the other disciples. Tell the other disciples, and then pandemonium ensues. Is all I can th- is the way I can think of it. I just I just feel like they there's a lot of like running around, and I can't believe it's going on. What's going on? You know, I, I don't know. That's just the way it feels when you read all that. It's like nobody really believes anybody else. Like, wait, I got to see this for myself because this doesn't make any sense. And there's all this running around and stuff. But so the women gonna, were the first ones. If we're going to celebrate Easter, like, in a commemorative way of what happened on the first <laughs> Easter Sunday, yeah. then we should, like, run a 5K or something. <laughs> <laughs> There is all that running around, isn't it? Yeah, anyway, we maybe, should be more authentic. Maybe hiding Easter eggs and running around chasing those is kind of what we do. Like, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's interesting that God chose women. He told the women first. Um, it's interesting because in the culture at the time, a woman's testimony wouldn't have been allowed as evidence in court at that time. And yet God told the women first. God showed the women first. That's just neat. I don't, it just, just, you know, it doesn't matter what the culture said at the time. You know, I don't know if God was rewarding their faithfulness or what. It, it doesn't say why. It's just, this is what happened. And they're the ones who came and said, he's, he's gone, he's risen. And that kicked the whole thing off. Well, and there's several times within the Gospels when you see Jesus interacting with women there's situations where a woman does something, you know, mm-hmm. perhaps socially unacceptable, and you can see the disdain of the other men. Yeah. Whether it's the disciples or like uh, Simon the Pharisee. Well, the Pharisee, when the woman came into house, his house. And, um, you know, the woman at the well, the, the disciples kind of like, why are you talking to her? And, you know, mm-hmm. um, but Jesus always i mean and the woman who had the the health issue when she touched she touched his robe and and just jesus never showed anything but compassion and almost like i i just visualize it as like lifting these women up from their from their place Mm -hmm. of subservience in a patriarchal society Mm -hmm. to be equally loved by him and you know ministered to by him and just like saying you know just in front of these men not like oh it's okay i'm going to be condescending to them right but like no they deserve this too Mm -hmm. um so he was always gentle and compassionate Mm -hmm. there's a lot of interaction in jesus ministry with women and it's definitely not like oh this is what the men are doing and the women are a sub you know a footnote there's a lot of interaction with women um even the gentile woman there's a gentile woman whose son Mm -hmm. he heals and you know he pushes her a little bit but her faith prevails and he doesn't he doesn't shortchange her um even being a gentile um and then um but as we move through the end of jesus life one other thing and i know this is kind of getting into the book of acts and i don't want to go through the whole new testament right now but the the disciples so the disciples started meeting after Jesus ascension there's 120 disciples who met 
to pray about who should replace Judas and the apostles. And they're praying for the Holy Spirit to come. There's kind of this before the book of Acts really like kicks off with what we think of as like the early church and like the growth of the church and stuff like that. The 120 disciples there included women. So you think that core group of disciples at the beginning, that included women from the get-go. That was the church. That was the church. That was the beginning of the church. So, which would have, is very unusual for the time because like followers of a rabbi, like that would have been all men typically. But Jesus did something very different and they were right there on equal standing with all the other disciples, with that core group of disciples. So that's, I mean, that's just Jesus' ministry and immediately after. Um, we should probably save going through other New Testament passages because there's a lot to unpack in some other New Testament passages, which I'm sure everybody's thinking of. What about, we'll get there. We'll get there. I promise. Yeah. So we'll start with <laughs> the rest of Acts, which is just a little bit. Yep. And then get into the other things that Paul thought about women. Right. Um, <laughs> Besides talking about creation what, and Adam and Eve. Or what so. he, what people think he said. Um, right. Exactly. Yep. So for this episode's recommended resource, I wanted to mention a book that is the opposite of how Proverbs 31 is typically used. Um, so there's a few I could mention, I guess. Uh, I might have mentioned this one before as a recommended resource, but it's called Own Your Life by Sally Clarkson. And she does have uh, another more recent book out called Help, I'm Drowning, um, which I think will be really good if I ever get to finish reading it. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't gotten sidetracked with all these other books. Um, but really anything by her, her podcast, her blog, um, because she doesn't give you this list of expect expectations that you have to live up to. Um, so... Just she, does, her... she doesn't put burdens on everybody right. about everything. Yep. It's much more, it's, it's gracious in the best sense of the word, the way yeah. she approaches things. It's full of grace and freedom and, you know, correct truth, but in a very gracious way instead yep. of putting burdens on everybody. Yeah. So anyway, definitely recommend anything pretty much by Sally Clarkson. Um, so that would be the recommended resource for this episode. Just when we're talking about the Jesus ministry in an effort to be quote unquote biblical, I think a lot of Christian denominations, IFB included, have latched on to a bunch of different passages about women and pulled in a bunch of Old Testament stuff and forgotten that Jesus talked about fulfilling the law and giving the heart principles behind the law. So if you want to start somewhere for what Christianity really should be, you really should start with Jesus. I think the Old Testament gives us good insight into what came before and all the history and where this is coming from and what God is doing. But it, it was it's very clear in the New Testament that the law is not supposed to apply to believers in the New Testament era. So from the New Testament on, once Jesus came, the Old Testament law doesn't apply directly. Um, and you got to start with Jesus. So take a look. 
and let's start there because I think we forget it and we gloss over it and latch onto all these other verses that we people pull out of context. All right. Thanks for listening. Finding Normal is a production of Grace and Peace Publications. Our hosts are Chris and Rachel Nobile. Our theme song is by the band Young Presidents. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, contact us at graceandpeacepublications.com.